Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all. How was that extra hour of sleep, or did you stay up extra late last night? Hmm. I have done that before. But we'll be in Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 18, if you want to turn in your Bibles there. Today, at one announcement is uh, at the end of service, we are going to have a time of communion. So if you're a believer and a follower of Jesus, I'll invite people up and you can all come forward at once and receive the cup and the bread, and then I will lead everyone in a prayer together after the song. So please avail yourself of that. It's great to remember and proclaim the death of our Savior till he comes, and that's Interesting, only Christianity can say that because Jesus is alive, though he died. God come to earth, become flesh, went down into the grave for us, and now is risen, ascended into glory, and will, will raise us up together with him. So praise his holy name. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word, and thank you for our brothers and sisters here. For those watching from afar, we pray that your blessing be upon this time, that you would minister your truth to our hearts, that you would fill us with your spirit and fill us with joy to know you and to have this insight into your character, into your wisdom, and how th you made things to be. And I pray that we would submit to your rule, that we would submit to your authority, and, and thank you that you have come in the person of Jesus and submitted to the Father in all things. And I pray that we would Follow your example of love and grace and compassion and mercy towards all, obedience to the Father to do his will, and be glorified and exalted in this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. One assumption people can make, and it's a, it's a foolish one, is thinking the Bible, because it's ancient, it means it's irrelevant. But that is untrue, because God who created the world and who does not change, his word does not change, and it's perfectly relevant for us, because the worldly wisdom, it changes with the times. You'll have different perspectives on what's, what constitutes good parenting or good discipline. And, and that can change over time. Uh, but God's wisdom, it transcends all of our ideas. Um, it gives us the truth despite all the opinions and traditions and philosophies all around us. And we can, we can stand firm on the word of God without apology, without embarrassment, even if we're scorned and mocked or seen as unintellectual, or if our intelligence is questioned for believing that God created the heavens and the earth and mankind in his image, because no man is a fool who takes God at his word. He says, God exists, he has revealed himself, and he has spoken, and this is what he has said. And Genesis is such a critical book because it sets the foundation for so many things, for all that follows in the Old and the New Testament. It, it gives us great clarity about who God is, that he is a creator. He is our maker. He is the author of all life. And because he's wise, he knows what's best for all of us. God created man needy, and he knows how to meet our needs. He's our maker and our savior. And so my approach as I'm going through this book is not to use it as a rebuttal against the wisdom or the philosophies we see in the world today, but or to take shots at groups of people or ideas, or to say what I think you need to hear or what the world needs to hear. My role is to hold forth what God has said as clearly as I can. And there's really no controversy. There's no 
contradiction in God himself. Controversies arise when man doesn't agree with God. When we justify ourselves against God and we say that God wasn't quite right on this point. Or we justify ourselves in pride. We know that God is good. He created all things that are good. History shows when man begins to exalt and to exert himself as if he knows better than God, that's where troubles come and they multiply. And in creating mankind with the ability to choose that freedom of choice that we all have, God gave the ability for people to oppose him as an enemy. And that didn't exist until God created mankind in his own image and said that we have, a free, we have the freedom to choose. And at the same time, God gives an invitation that we would listen to him, that we would obey him when there are contrary views to what the Bible says about God and choose to trust him in surrender and obedience. And it's only with that freedom of choice that God's love, his mercy and compassion and grace can be magnified, that it could be seen. Because if everything is exactly as God, if it remained precisely as God made it, how could his love be shown? How could his grace be shown? But it's in the face of opposition. Remember, Jesus took those blows. of People that denied he was the Christ. And he did it willingly with the joy set before him. He knew what God was going to accomplish through that. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the plants, all living creatures. He formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into him a living soul. It says in Genesis 2:7, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. The Hebrew word translated ground here is Adama. And so he was called Adam because he came out of the ground. God placed the man in Eden, eastward, and he placed him there to tend and to keep it. So he gave man the capacity and ability to work, and this was good. And all the good things that God's given, we could worship and serve as God, but uh, remember that all good things have come from God. The ability to work, the ability to gain, to be fruitful, God, we should worship him because he's given us all these things. Picking up in Genesis 2, verse 18. And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper comparable to him. On the first six days of creation, God looked upon all that he had made and said, it was good. It was very good. And this is the first time that God said something was not good. And it wasn't that what he had made was bad, but it was bad that man whom he made should be alone. Remember, God had said in chapter 1 that man and beast should be fruitful and multiply to fill the earth and subdue it. And Adam could not do that by himself. It was impossible. It wasn't good for Adam to be solitary and alone. God made man for a relationship with himself and with others. Yet there, were, there was no one else around. It's not good for people to be separated from God. And people... Other than God recognized this, that being alone and isolated is a problem. Remember when Moses was judging the children of Israel, Jethro, his father-in-law, and says, what are you doing? You're sitting by yourself alone judging the people, and this isn't good because it's going to wear you out. You need to delegate some of this authority to others. And he listened to his father-in-law. Uh, Genesis 32, 24, it's very interesting. It says, then Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Jacob was by himself. 
He was alone, but God met with him. And he wrestled with him so that in the end, he would be blessed by God and he would have a new identity found in God. We can feel alone, but we know that God sees us. He hears us. He knows us. He draws near to us. And that's a beautiful passage there where he's left alone. And yet there's this man who just appears and wrestles with him. God would make Adam a helper comparable to him, one to correspond to him, one to compliment and soup suit him. And being a helper shouldn't be seen as a demeaning term in any way. It's the same word that's used as God to describe God who helps us. And of course, we would never say that God is subordinate to us in any way, right? Deuteronomy 33, 29, just a couple of verses here. It says, happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help and the sword of your majesty. Your enemies shall submit to you and you shall tread down their high places. And in the New Testament, we read of the divine helper God would send in John 14, 25, and 26. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. The Holy Spirit helps us to understand what God has said and to do things that are impossible for us to do alone. We cannot do them. But with the Holy Spirit helping us, we can. The Holy Spirit helps us. God was determined to help Adam. A parent or a a tutor can help a student with their work. Sometimes we ask, a child may ask you to help, right? And it's not like you need their help. And you maybe not even need their assistance, but you include them and they feel like, you know, I've contributed. This isn't the sort of help that God is giving, where it's like assistance just to make up what's lacking. It was something that was impossible for Adam to do on his own. He had an inadequacy. He could not complete it in himself. And he could not remedy it by himself. Now, if you'll be honest, are there times where you're not interested in anyone's help? You're like, I can do this. Like I I really, it's just more trouble than it's worth to have help right now. And I don't really think your kind of help is the help that I need. We can be a bit picky about the kind of help. We're like, is it the good help or the bad help? Because if it's that kind of help, I'm not interested in it. There's a kind of help that it's like, if you're struggling to pay your bills and someone will pay them for you, well, you may accept that help. You may not, but you could If help means us changing, us going to meetings or going to a doctor or humbling ourselves or submitting to others, we may not be so interested in that kind of help. So we know we need help, but we determine what kind of help we're willing to submit to. But God knew Adam needed help, and it was not just assistance he needed. He needed something he could not have on his own. Matthew Henry, he observed this, in our best state in this world, we have need of one another's help. It is God only who perfectly knows our wants and is perfectly able to supply them all. In him alone, our help is, and from him are all our helpers. And if Adam needed help in a sinless ideal world, how much more do we need help in a fallen world, in a world that does not fear God or know him? And it seems like Adam didn't really recognize initially his need of help. He hadn't been raised with with parents or brothers or sisters or had that companionship of, of friendship before. But God knew what Adam needed and he knows what we need as well. 
Picking up in Genesis 2, 19. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. We learn here, like Adam, the Lord formed the animals from the dust of the ground. Uh, Adam was unique in that he was created in the image of God, that God breathed into him a living soul, an eternal part of him that would dwell um, either with God or apart from God forever. And we see God delegating authority to Adam in a very unique way because God, he, he named the day and the night, the sun and the moon, right? The dry land and the seas. He, he determined what they were called, but then he says, I'm going to let Adam, who's made in my image, name all these kinds of animals to see what he will call them. So God's not going to over, God's not overruling him. He's giving him freedom now to make a choice. And God's going to say that stands. Pretty crazy, huh? That he would see what he would call them. I mean, as if he didn't know. But the, the idea is there was freedom there. He wasn't dictating, okay, the, this one, you know, it kind of looks like a giraffe. I'm just saying. And then Adam's like, oh, yeah, giraffe sounds good. No, he just brought him, to, what's this? Oh, that's this. And he just named things. And there was much more going on than just, Adam, what should these animals be called? Because as these animals were brought before Adam, he noticed that there were differences among them, differences of kind, differences between males and females, function and size. You know, lions, the, li the male lion has a large mane. The female does not. Some birds, they have very different plumage between males and females. And the male had a corresponding female. But among all of them, there was none that was comparable to Adam. Adam didn't see his counterpart among the cattle or the birds. There was no animal that resembled him. There was nothing that had an ability to reason, to communicate with words, who understood or cared about him in any way, that had an ability to um, have empathy or compassion. Anything that he could look to as an equal, there was none to be found among all the creatures. Man was given dominion over all the living creatures and Adam named them and not one creature said, thank you for that name. I like that name. They just walked off and they weren't like him. It was not in animals to communicate to him with a heart of understanding, of mutual knowledge. And this is a wondrous aspect of being created in the image of God because the God who created us to feel, he feels completely. The God who created us to know, he knows all things. There's nothing hidden from his sight. He knows everything at once. Our understanding is finite, but his is infinite. There's no limit to his understanding. And because God knows our frame, he's able to help us even when we do not know how to pray, when we don't know how to ask. There's this connection we can have with him through Jesus Christ that uh, we read in Romans 8, 26 and 27. Likewise, the spirit also helps in our weaknesses for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings, which cannot be uttered. 
Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Now, if someone sighs or groans, you're like, ugh. You're like, all right. You try to interpret. What, what does that mean exactly? And, and you may not even know why you're sighing. Like I can hear someone sigh. Go, you're sighing a lot. Do you notice? Oh, I didn't even notice that. Why? Why are you doing that? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why I am. But the Lord knows. And the Lord, without us even knowing, he is interceding on our behalf with the Father according to the will of God. When no one else realizes what you're, you're going through, the pain you're enduring, the, the confusion that's existing, he is on your behalf making intercession with the Father, which is amazing. So he's helping us without us even knowing it. I mean, how many times has that happened? More than you can count, more than you can know. God was helping you when you didn't know him, and he's continued to help you after you've known him, and he helps us when we ask him, and he helps us when we don't even think to ask him, and all we can go is, ah, he hears and he knows and he comes, draws near to help us and all the sympathy, all the empathy in the world. And we, if one person sympathizes with us, it makes us feel a bit better, but all the sympathy in the world cannot make the difference the Holy Spirit can in a heart of a person who fears God in a person who knows him by grace through faith in Jesus. Genesis 2, 21. And the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. I like that God did not consult with Adam what he should do to meet his need. Like, let's talk about this. Let's brainstorm Adam. God knew what he was going to do. And without Adam's permission, he puts him into a deep sleep and he performs an operation to remove a rib and from that rib created a woman. Woman was created differently than all other animals, different than man in that she was taken out of man. She was a natural relation to Adam. She was not of a different kind. She came from Adam. She was a part of Adam that was now standing by his side. And because God formed her out of man, he could immediately see similarities between them. That they were the same nature, flesh, bone, and blood. Man and woman were thus suited to live with one another. When one was cold, the other one might feel cold at the same time, maybe. Adam Clark said, they were thus granted by God equal powers, faculties, and rights. This at once ensured his affection and excited his esteem. So equal in value, equal in personhood, created in the image of God, but not the same. That there was a difference between man and woman. They had individual souls, thoughts, feelings, desires, and they would have different roles as a husband and wife. One supplying seed, the other a womb. They perfectly complemented each other. And the female was named by Adam. Adam called her woman because she was taken out of man. And Hebrew man is ish. Adam called her isha or she man. Now, I don't know what language Adam spoke. There was a lot of changes from the flood and, and Babel and 
So we don't know, but in Hebrew, that's how the word works. It's isha is she-man, and man is ish. So taken out of man. It's just in the word woman. Adam delighted in his woman. I am convinced of this. And it wasn't because he was tired of watching the animals go by or he, he, the naming had become a bit tiresome to him. Not at all. She was completely unique and perfectly suited for him. There was a connection. There was a mutual attraction. It was like no other creature he had ever seen. There was something alluring. There was interest and desire between them that he had not experienced previously. I think of all the sounds animals make. You have the squawking and the, the roaring and the barking and chirping and... And then to have your, to have, to Adam, to have his woman look at him and say, hello, you must be Adam. That was a big shock. That was a big difference. Like I've heard about you. Wow. Someone that I can talk with. This is crazy. Wild. He looked at her knowing she was literally a part of him designed by God to be his and that he was hers also. She was bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh, designed by God to stand by his side, that they could be together. Agur wrote this in Proverbs 30, 18 and 19. There are three things which are too wonderful for me. Yes, four, which I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the air, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship in the midst of the sea, and the way of a man with a virgin. Pretty majestic to see an eagle in flight. Soaring on the wind currents, pretty amazing to think like, how does that snake move so quickly around the rocks when it doesn't even have legs? Like, how, how does it grip so well? How does it move so quickly? You see the, the ships navigating stormy seas. I've only seen them on videos and I'm really glad because they look pretty brutal. And I'm like, whoa, I would be sick as a dog out there. And Agur includes another extraordinary thing, the way or path of a man with a maid, that they would grow in love for one another whom God has brought together. And God's put the capacity in people to love one another, to respond to the love of each other in courtship and marriage. That wasn't a path that Adam had ever walked down. No one had. And Eve, as she would later be called, they would be joined together by God in marriage both virgins, very good. That was not a sense of embarrassment, shame, or pride. There was no one else, and they didn't want there to be anyone else because they were made for each other. Perfect match. They were more than just a cute couple, right? God put them together. He designed them that way. And God joined them together in holy matrimony long before governments existed to provide marriage certificates. Picking up in verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now, these verses are very critical for they set the, the groundwork, really, for the understanding of men and women, for marriage, and the origin of the family as God's divine institution. He set the groundwork here. And we know that monogamous marriage has been the basis for family and raising children since the beginning of human history. And God's purposes, his design and plans, that's the reason why. Because God created it 
to work that way. And we see here father and mother, male and female, one man, one woman joined together as one flesh, made husband and wife before death existed or could part them. And there is a physical aspect of being one flesh through sexual union. But because we're created in the image of God, there's also a spiritual component to this. There's a companionship that we have between spouses. And it is through those multifaceted aspects of marriage that include sex and serving and supporting one another, loving and forgiving, remaining committed to your spouse despite trials and conflict that it says shall become one flesh. If those of you who are married, you can say that you have grown closer over time if it's a healthy marriage. And when we say I do, it's like seeing in a mirror dimly. But as we go on in marriage, it's by the grace of God who strengthens us to keep loving day after day, face to face in real time. Not just a romantic notion, but an opportunity every day to serve the Lord and to show his love one to another. Hebrews 13, 4, it says this, Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. When marriage was instituted by God, there was no sin. There was uh, no curse or corruption. There was no need to outline the roles of a, a, a husband and a wife because they both lived in mutual submission to God. Right? There was no bitterness between them. There was no ill will or resentment. Uh, there was no greed or selfishness. There was no war of the wills that was occurring. They were literally the perfect couple in an ideal situation when we see Adam and Eve. Today, we live in a world that's quite different, a world corrupted by sin, a world under its curse. And we have hearts that are prone to hardness. And marriage can be seen as unnecessary or can be slighted or maligned. But just because marriages have failed does not mean the institution of marriage is not a good thing. Marriage is good. It says honorable among all. As Hebrews says, fornication, that's sex outside of marriage, adultery, unfaithfulness in marriage. It has led to marriages breaking down and God's given judgments concerning these in his word. And it's consistent throughout. He says what's sinful and he's also sanctified the marriage bed. And to disregard God's design for sex and marriage, it's to move away from building a house on a rock to really propping up a shelter on sand and great will be the fall. This passage of Genesis 2, we're going to go to a couple of passages in the Bible where it's quoted by Paul and by Jesus. So why don't we turn to Matthew chapter 19, 3 through 6. Marriage is a covenant between one man and one woman before God. And the Pharisees came to Jesus trying to trick him in his words, bring them into controversy. Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 3. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So then they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together... Let not man separate. The Pharisees asked Jesus what 
would constitute a legal divorce under Mosaic law. And this was a very controversial subject among the Jewish rabbis. They were divided and they basically are saying, well, whose side are you on? This is one of the many points of disagreement and debate between the Shammai and Hillel schools of thought. One was very severe and the other was quite lenient in comparison. And Jesus didn't deal with hypothetical situations or arguments. He goes right back to the beginning of God's creation and his purposes, what God did in a marriage. He said, God made males and females, how he joined them together as one flesh. And he says, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So he focuses on the permanency of marriage, not if or could, or must you divorce your wife? Because that was what the Jews were debating. And he says, those are irrelevant arguments. Go back to God's purposes and his plan at the beginning, creating Adam, joining him together with Eve, his wife, making one flesh. God's put them together. Man should not separate them. That's the point. So you're getting all caught up in controversy when God's plan and purposes are clear. So he was talking about the permanence of that and that when you enter into that covenant, it's before the Lord. I like that God didn't give Adam or Eve a pitch on how marriage could benefit them. He's like, well, you know, you're kind of struggling by yourself, Adam. And uh, if this could be good, this could be great. Okay, I'm sold on that. No, God did it because it was a good thing. It was a good thing for them to be brought together and it was his his will that they stay together. Now, because God's given people freedom to choose, we'll see on our journey through Genesis that people in the Bible and in, uh, they don't always acknowledge God, heed or obey him, right? We'll see that very consistently throughout the book of Genesis and throughout the scripture. Paul in the New Testament, he makes it clear that not everyone's called to be married and how he used his single status to serve the Lord rather than a wife. But at the same time, we can know that marriage is a good thing from God. As it says in Proverbs 18, 22, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. The only way you find a wife is that God has joined you together with someone and that he has brought you and will keep you together by his grace. So to you married men, I say, you cannot do better than good. If you have obtained a good thing from the Lord, be content in the goodness that he has lavished upon you and know that God's given us wives to love and to cherish. It's a practical demonstration of God's grace and goodness. We have that opportunity uh, as followers of Christ to be submitting one to another, to loving one another as he loves us. And uh, in the context of what we're going to say in Ephesians, it says this in Ephesians 5, 20 and 21, giving thanks always for all things to God, the father in the name of our Lord, Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Now, God doesn't change. His plans for marriage have remained the same. The world has opinions on marriage beyond count. And it's impossible to reckon how much advice has been given about marriage, how many books have been written, how many seminars have been held. And some of those things could be helpful. Some things not so helpful, right? You kind of tailor it to what works for you, or that's how it's put forth. God's word cuts through all of that. 
It cuts through the opinions and the noise and the traditions and the way that you saw your dad interact with your mom or the way you think they should have interacted or how you feel you should interact at the time. God's word gives us the truth. It's the ultimate authority on marriage, the fear of God, and submitting to one another. The world says you need to assert yourself. God says to humble yourself. So we see there, there's clearly at odds with each other, the philosophies of the world and God's wisdom. We're to follow the lead of Christ who is servant of all. Now turn to Paul's breakdown of what makes for healthy marriage in Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. And it doesn't matter if you've been married for a month or you've been married for 50 years, this remains true. And it's amazing to me how Paul just breaks it down into these basic common things and how we need the Holy Spirit to help us actually follow through with that one thing that each one is told to do, right? We'll see. Ephesians 5, 20 through 22 and 20, 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This wife's submission to her husband is a service rendered to the Lord, yet not as if her husband is the Lord. There's a big difference. It's done as unto the Lord. And this is a conscious decision made to yield to her own husband, just like as a, a member of a sports team. If there's a captain, you place yourself under their authority. When there's music playing and, and you're dancing, you submit to the beat. If you are a member of an orchestra and you may be the best violinist, you need to submit to the music and the tempo and the conductor. So we do these things all the time and that's what we're called to do, uh, to submit to one another. We also make this decision like, am I going to submit to that counsel? Am I going to follow that example or will I submit to Christ, right? This does not mean a wife must submit to domestic violence or sinful behavior. The submission of the wife to the husband is complemented by the command for a husband to love his wife as Christ loved the church. And you think, well, how did Christ love the church? Well, by dying for it, by sacrificing himself, by laying down his own life in, in obedience to the father so that um, the church would be purchased so we could be born again. And he says, since a husband and a wife are one flesh... You, you are, you're showing love actually for yourself in loving your wife. You benefit from that love. In nourishing, loving, and cherishing her, he does the same for himself. 
because they are one flesh. They are part of one another. Wouldn't it be silly for the head to not care about any other part of the body? Like my legs are gangrenous and I don't care because I'm the head and you're the feet. That is ridiculous. The head does not live unless the feet are healthy. If your feet are gangrenous, well, then you will be very sick and the whole body will perish. So if you, and he's pointing out, you feed yourself, you care for yourself. Well, how much more care should you show the wife that God has given you? Show love unto her as Christ loved the church. A husband demonstrates faith and submission to God by loving his wife. A wife does the same by submitting to her own husband. And the love that the husband shows, it's not contingent on the wife submitting to him as he thinks she should. Or a wife's submission is not contingent on her husband loving her as she thinks she should be. Right? So it's not, it's about Christ. Both the husband and the wife, they look to Christ to see his example of love and submission to the father. And then as we submit to one another in love, then we find a place of agreement as we grow together. It's much easier, we can say, for a wife to submit to a husband who loves her. And it's easier to show love, to choose to show love to a wife who submits and respects you. But we can only do it by faith in Jesus, by the Holy Spirit who helps us to abide in that place where he's called us. And see how submission and love, they complement each other. They work perfectly together. Now, we're not perfect but what a blessing God gives us to, to grow in love and grace. Paul explained that there's a bigger thing going on than just man and wife. That this is how God loves the church purchased with the blood of Jesus. He says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. The picture of Adam and Eve and their marriage, their joining as one flesh, it was a foreshadowing of what God was going to do through Jesus by purchasing the church with his own blood, that he would be the head and we would be his body. All of all believers made one in Christ. That God foresaw his unifying people who fear and trust him as one, that he would make one with himself. Remember the prayer that Jesus prayed in John 17? It says that we may be one as I am one with you. Well, that's this joining that we read about. Marriage goes all the way back to the beginning of creation. God's plans to join mankind with himself uh, in the church. That goes back before time began. We read of this in 1 Peter 1, 20 and 21. He was indeed foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So he has been manifested now to us, Christ, our head, the head of the church, but he was there before. And God's brought this mystery to light through marriage pointing toward his union with the church as a bride. So whether married or not, all believers were to submit to one another in love. We're united with Christ as one body of the church. It's Jesus who sanctified and cleansed us. It's he who has purposed to present the church to himself as a bride, 
holy, glorious, without blemish, even as Eve was given to Adam. And he is the one who lovingly nourishes and cherishes us. And we respond by submitting to him and to one another. Our hope is in Christ. He, was, he died. He was buried. He has been risen from the dead. He has ascended to the Father in glory. A common thing we have in marriage ceremonies today is to say, till death do us part. But since Christ conquered death, that does not ring true with our unity with him because he has conquered death. He has made us one with himself. And Jesus, he did not marry a woman while on earth because he was already betrothed um, the church to himself that he would be united with forever. So it's pretty awesome that God would pay the price because that was a very common thing is that you pay the bride price in those ancient times. And he, he fixed to pay that price with his own blood that we could be his forever. We're born again. We're part of him now. He lives within us. And so he has joined us with himself. And today we remember and proclaim the death of our Lord Jesus. He is our head. We are connected to him by grace. And he has paid the price for our sin. He has demonstrated his love for us. And that's an interesting thing. We say you proclaim the death of the Lord till he comes. The death of Christ was a proclamation of a demonstration of his love for us. And we live in light of his resurrection, the power that raised him from the dead. That's the same power that's forgiven us. That's given us new life through him. That's given us a future and a hope of eternity in his presence. And having received his love, we are to love one another as he loves us. So as we take of the bread, the bread representing the body of Christ that was broken, the cup symbolizing the blood that was shed for our sins and how the atonement was provided. And as we receive these willingly into our mouths and ingest them, it is a sign that we have received that work that Jesus has given through shedding his blood for us. We have received that sacrifice and we have now been born again. Now we are sustained by him, by grace through faith. And so what, what a blessing to proclaim his death together and may his love shine through us with one another as we seek him and submit to him. Could I please invite the worship team forward? And as they lead us in a song, then I invite you to come forward and uh, just take of the bread and the cup, and then we'll partake together. And let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your sovereignty and your wisdom and your plans that you saw it was not good that man be alone, but you sent a helper for him. You made Eve from Adam's side and you took woman out of man. And I thank you, Lord, that you have sent Christ and how we are now new creations through faith in him, that he is the head of the church and we are his body that you have joined together as one. We were taken, we were, we were created in your image and now we have this new life as new creations through the gospel. And now we are joined together and death cannot separate us. You've given us eternal life. I thank you, Lord, for this mystery you've revealed to us and for the great hope we have through Christ and how we can celebrate and rejoice in this one with another. And I pray we wouldn't just be happy about it, but our lives would reflect that. 
by repenting of our sin before you, by acknowledging the work that you have done on the cross to wash us of our sins and to give us new life. And I pray we would do the things that fully please you. Lord, I pray in this time that we would draw near to you, that we would surrender our hearts before you, that you would be honored and glorified and that um, you would minister your truth to our hearts, that you would show us, Lord, if we have not been loving as we ought, if we have not been submitting as we ought, that we would surrender our hearts to you. We would give you our sin so that you could give us freedom and cleansing and joy and peace and rest that's only available through faith in Christ. Lord, I thank you for this time and for your word and minister to our hearts now and fill us with praise for your name. In Jesus' name we pray together. Amen.